Well, good morning, RCC in the room and online. It's so good to be back with you for week two of a series that we started last week called When Life Gives You Lemons. If you weren't with us last week, uh, we started a new series that's all about adversity, how to navigate the adversity that comes our way. And so last week, we started by talking about how we respond to adversity. How do we respond to adversity? I gave you three questions. I said, what's in my control? Uh, to ask that question and process that, to identify the things that God has given you, to participate uh, in, in in ways that you can respond to the adversity that comes your your way. What's in my control? How can I grow from this? Uh, And we said we'd talk about community, which we did last week. We'd talk about obedience, which we're going to talk more about this week. And then who can I help because of this, that the lemons of our life uniquely position us in such a way uh, that we can bring the light of Jesus into really dark situations. So we talked about how to respond to adversity. What we're going to talk about this week is how do we get through adversity as we wrap up week two of this series, When Life Gives You Lemons. So I'd love to pray for us, and we'll jump in. Father, thank you. Um, Yeah, thank you, one, for the adversity that we face. We talked about that last week, Um, that while it's difficult and while it's challenging and while it may be hard, that it's still good when it's in your hands. And so, one, we just want to thank you um, for the way that you're using the challenges and the adversity in our life to mold us, to conform us into your image, to become more like you. Um, But the reality, Father, is that the the season that we're in has not yet ended, and it's going to continue on um, for some time. And so as we navigate this season, would you help us to get through it well? Would you show us how to get through it well? Would you tender our hearts this morning to hear that from you? So we love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So I mentioned last week uh, that I have identical twin baby girls, Wesley Grace and Zoe Faith Fatiomi. And it's funny, now that I'm a parent, uh, I find myself praying a whole lot more. Right? Like I pray for their future spouse, that they would meet someone, that their most attractive quality would be their love for Jesus. I pray for their character, that, that they would be women of character and integrity. I pray for their courage, that they would speak up and stand out and do the right thing when it needs to be done. I pray for their faith, that they would love Jesus more than anything in the world. Um, but it's funny, the thing that I pray most about are the things that I did when I was a kid that I pray my kids do not do as well. I did some dumb stuff as a kid. And so God, please do not let Wesley and Zoe do to me uh, some of the things that I did to my mom growing up. There's one moment that comes to my mind in particular. It was my freshman year of high school. And I got invited to this leadership conference. And so I went to the conference with some buddies of mine and it was on a Saturday. And so the goal was to stay there for the whole Saturday and learn all these principles about leadership. And we'd get a little certificate at the end and it'd allow us to do some different leadership things in our school. And so I got invited to this conference and I was supposed to be there for the whole day. But when I got to the conference, I quickly realized that I had some other friends who were there that were a little bit older than me. As I mentioned, I was a freshman. Uh, These were the upperclassmen guys on the basketball team. And I played basketball as a freshman And and so seeing the seniors and the junior guys who played as well at the same conference was super cool just to get to hang out with them for a little while there. But the moment that really took it over the edge for me was when one of them, Jared, came to me and he said, hey, Gerald, um, some of us are actually going to leave the conference early and go play in an AAU travel basketball game that we have tonight. And we're wondering if you'd want to come with us. And so I was like, of course, right? Like, I'm a freshman. They're upperclassmen. This is my moment to go and hang with the upperclassmen. This is going to be amazing. Now, here's what you need to understand about this moment. There was one rule for me my senior year. One rule that my mom had laid out for me in my freshman year of high school, and the rule was really, really simple. Gerald, 
if you're going to go anywhere, you call me, you get me on the phone, and you tell me where you're going. The rule wasn't even, you can't go. The rule was just, hey, I need to know where you're going to be at all times. And so knowing this, I call my mom. Go straight to voicemail, so I hang up. I call again. Go straight to voicemail, so I hang up. I call the third time, she doesn't answer, so I leave a voicemail. I go, hey, mom, uh, some of the guys are going to a basketball game. They're going to give me a ride to the game, and then they're going to take me to dinner. We're going to go to Steak and Shake, have some burgers, some, some uh, shakes, and then they're going to bring me back home so you don't have to worry about dinner. You don't have to worry about picking me up. I'll be home later this afternoon. I get in the car with the guys, and we head off to the game. They win the game, which is great. We go have burgers and milkshakes. They bring me back home, and I walk into the front door of my house, and my grandma is sitting on the couch watching some old show, you know, like The Price is Right or Family Feud or something like that. And my sister is sitting on the couch next to her who's 10 years older than me, and she hears the door open and immediately snaps her neck to look at the door. I walk into the front door, and my sister makes this sound. Mm. It's in that moment that I knew this was not going to be a good night for me. I look at her and I'm like, what? And she's like, mom is looking everywhere for you. And then she begins to laugh. Now, here's the thing. I don't know what it is about older siblings that take such privilege and joy in watching their younger sibling get in trouble, but she knew what was on the way. This is the reason she laughs. She goes, mom has been looking everywhere for you. Her phone has died. She does not know where you are, and she cannot find her charger. So she's just driving through neighborhoods trying to find you. And I'm like, well, I left her a message. She's like, I don't know. I just know it's going to be bad. So I go into my bedroom. I begin pacing around my room because I know what's coming. See, if you grew up in a black household, you know this. If you haven't, let me just invite you into our world. Um, Growing up, there's this thing called a syllable butt whooping, okay? If you don't know what that is, like most people, you know, you get spanked as a kid. It's like, boom, okay, stop, don't be bad. All right, cool, move on, go play with your toys, right? In a black family, that's not what happens. You get a syllable butt whooping. That's where they grab a belt, or if they can't find a belt, literally any object that they can find that's long enough to hit you with, and they proceed to hit you for every syllable and every word. Didn't I tell you not to go to the movies? And I'm like, mom, you can't hit me that many times? That's child abuse. She's like, no, it's not. Shut up. I'm your mom, right? So I know a syllable butt whooping is on the way, and I'm stressed about it. So I do the thing that every young black kid does when he knows he's about to get a syllable butt whooping. I put on every piece of clothing that I own. Three pairs of boxers, two pairs of shorts, all the pants that I can fit over that. I have on t-shirts, hoodies, winter jackets. It's the middle of July, didn't matter. Like I have everything on preparing myself for what's going to happen. But y'all, let me just tell you, I was not prepared because that front door opened. My mom looks into my bedroom And she says these words to me, Gerald. And when she said my name that calm, (laughs) that's how I knew it was bad. Gerald, you better call the police to keep me from what I'm about to do to you. And she keeps walking. And I panic. Y'all, I did the only logical thing to do in that moment. I ran. I ran out my front door, winter coat and all, and just started running laps around my neighborhood because I did not know where to go. But it was as I was running that I remembered the sermon that the pastor had preached the Sunday before. That sermon gave me direction in my running. And I ran to the rental office of our apartment complex. Huffing and puffing, I asked to borrow the phone. And I remembered the words from my pastor that Sunday. Honor your mother and father, 
What did my mom say? You better call the police to keep me from what I'm about to do to you. 911. Excuse me, officer. Um, my mom said that she's going to kill me. You can imagine the police came very quickly. Officer shows up. He puts me in the car. He drives me to my apartment. He walks upstairs. It's a black officer as well. And he, he sees my mom standing at the doorway with the belt in her hand and quickly assesses the situation. Did you just call the police to get out of a butt whooping? I looked at him and I said, yes, I did. The Bible told me to honor my mother and father. She said, you better call the police. Y'all, it did not work. The officer left laughing. My mom proceeded to lead me into the bedroom and give me a whooping that I have not set the same since. I remember sitting in my bedroom that night, wondering how I got in that situation. <clears throat> because here was the reality. I found myself there, not because I didn't know what to do. I knew the rule. There was one simple rule. Get my mom on the phone before I go anywhere. It wasn't that I didn't know what to do. It was that I didn't want to be told what to do. Come on, I was a freshman in high school. I'm an adult now. I, I don't need you to tell me what to do. I got this. I can take care of myself. I'm fine. I don't need you telling me what to do. It's funny, that mentality that I had as a freshman, I still find myself feeling at times as a full-grown adult. What's interesting is I'd be willing to bet you do as well, right? Because the reality is that nobody wants to be told what to do. No one wants to be told how to live. No one wants to be told how to behave. No one wants to be told what you can and cannot post and where you can and cannot go. No one wants to be told what to do. And you would think this mentality would leave us as kids, but it carries on into adulthood. We still don't like to be told what to do by our parents, right? You know how I know that's true? Let your parent tell you the way that you're supposed to be parenting your kid. Exactly. Nobody wants to be told what to do. Let one of your coworkers tell you the way that you should be doing your job when they're not your boss. No one wants to be told what to do. We don't like it from our parents still. We don't like it from our coworkers. We don't like it from our friends. We don't like it from the random people on social media who tell us the way that we should see the world. And most of all, if we're honest for a lot of us in the room, we don't like this from God. We don't like God telling us what we should do, how we should live, how we should behave, the way that we should see the world. We want to believe the way that we want to believe about certain issues. We want God to take our stance and our side. We want God's perspective to change as the times change. Come on, God, it's 2020. You can't expect us to think that way or believe that way anymore. No one wants to be told what to do. I remember a couple of years ago, I was at a summer camp I was preaching at, and I had a little bit more responsibility. I was actually on staff at the church that was hosting the camp, and so I had about 1,200 students that I was responsible for that week. And part of my responsibilities was after the sessions were over, I'd go to different groups and I'd check in on them and I'd pray with certain students and we'd have deeper conversations about messages, maybe things that they didn't understand. And over time, our, our volunteers, small group leaders understood like, hey, we can ask Gerald to come to our room and he'll come. 
And so there was this one group of junior girls, their small group leaders pulled me aside and said, hey, our girls are loving the week, but they're having a hard time connecting. And so we just wondered if you would come and just have a quick conversation with them. So I said yes, and uh, after the sessions were over, I went to their room, and, you know, they were loud and playing music and, like, doing their thing. But as soon as I got in the room, they kind of settled. We ended up sitting in the living room and, and having a really honest conversation. Honestly, it was one of the best conversations I've ever had with any person as it relates to the things of God. So I'm sitting and talking to this group of junior girls, and there's this one girl named Mary sitting in the corner. And you can tell she's kind of the ringleader of the entire group. And in the middle of our conversation, she pauses me and she goes, Gerald, I have a question. She says, Gerald, I like drinking. I like doing drugs. I like having sex with my boyfriend. Why can't I? Why can't I do those things and also like church? Because I love being here, but I also like those things. Why can't I have both? I did my best to give her my pastoral answer in that moment. But the more that I spoke, the more that I saw her eyes kind of glaze over because the reality is that she didn't want to be told what to do either. Felt pretty defeated in the moment, so I prayed and I walked out of the room and continued on with my day. Interesting, I think back to that. And here's what I understand about Mary. Mary had what I like to call a segmented Jesus. See, on one side, Mary was going, well, Savior Jesus, he's cool. The Jesus who died on the cross for my sins, I like him. The one that's full of grace, I'm in on. The one that wears Birkenstocks and like pets lambs, like that Jesus, I like that Jesus. But then there's this like Lord Jesus that y'all talk about. You know, the one that can like tell me how I should see the world, tell me what my moral ethics should be, and tell me the way that I should treat people and the way that I should behave. Like, I don't know, like, I don't know about that Jesus. Like, Savior Jesus, cool. Lord Jesus, not so much. And here's the reason I believe that Mary not only had a segment to Jesus, but was okay with one version of Jesus and dismissed the other. Here's why I think this was the case. It's one word, restriction. That Mary believed that if she allowed Jesus to be the Lord of her life, that he would restrict her from something, that he was trying to hold her back, that he was trying to limit her life, that, she was trying, that he was trying to keep her from anything that would bring her happiness or enjoyment or joy, that Jesus was trying to limit her. And so Savior Jesus that died on the cross for me, cool. But if you want me to live the way that God wants me to live, I don't know about that. This is too far. Because I'm going to miss out on all the good things that everyone else gets to experience. It's interesting that Mary's perspective as a high school junior is a lot of our perspective as well. Savior Jesus, the one that died on the cross for us, the one that's full of grace, the one that lets us come on a Sunday and we get to sing some songs, maybe get a little crazy and raise our hands. Yeah, that Jesus we're in on. But the Jesus that can tell us how to vote, the Jesus who tells us how to spend your money, the Jesus that tells you how to treat your enemy, 
the one who can dictate the way you live, well, that Jesus we're out on. And for many of us, we have a segmented Jesus. Savior Jesus is good, but Lord Jesus, not so much. I think the reason Mary had that perspective and the reason that a lot of us hold that perspective is because we understand the what, but we don't really understand the why. We understand what Jesus may want us to do. We understand what things that he wants us to do or the ways that he may want us to live, but we don't understand the why behind the what. And so here's my goal for the next 18 minutes and 19, 18, 17 seconds. My goal is to give you the why behind the what because I think if we'll understand the why, it will compel us to do the what. And maybe we can live not with a segmented Jesus, but we can live embracing all of who Jesus is and all that he has for us. I want to take you to one of Jesus' most famous sermons of all time. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, and it spans through Matthew chapter 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's his most famous sermon. It's also the longest sermon that he preached when he was on the planet Earth. Many scholars believe that he would have preached this sermon over and over and over again in different cities. And the interesting thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that if you really read through it, what you find is the Sermon on the Mount is actually a sermon of what's that over and over and over again, Jesus is telling us what we should do. This is the sermon that Jesus says, hey, you think, it's a, you think that adultery is a sin, but I'll take it a step further. If you even look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've already committed adultery in your own heart. Lust is a problem. It's a what? It's the same sermon that he talks about how you treat your enemies and how we should love our enemies, that it's easy to love the people who love us, but to love someone who mistreats you, who hates you, man, that's a whole nother ballgame. It's in the same sermon that he says, hey, you've heard it said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, you turn the other cheek. When someone strikes you or mistreats you or hurts you, you give them the other cheek as well. It's in the same sermon that Jesus tells us how we should allocate our funds by telling us that we should give to the needy and to the poor. It's in the same season sermon that Jesus teaches us how to pray when he says to the disciples, our Father, chart in heaven, hallowed be your name. And it's in the same sermon that Jesus teaches us about judging others. He says, whoa, whoa, whoa don't, don't you dare go pointing out the speck in their eye when you have a log or a plank in your own. This whole sermon is a sermon full of what's until you get to the very end of the sermon. See, Jesus lays out the road of what it looks like to be his disciple, what it looks like to follow him, and what it looks like to live with him as the Lord of our lives. But he doesn't just leave us with a list of what. He actually ends the sermon with the why behind the what. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Here's what Jesus says. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. He continues on and says this, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. So as Jesus wraps up the Sermon on the Mount, 
he talks about these two groups of people. He says, one is like a builder who builds his house on the rock. That the rains come down, that the streams will rise, that the winds will blow, and the house will be beaten against, but it will not fall because its foundation was built on the rock. On the other hand, he says, there's another builder, and this builder would build on the sand. So the rains would come down, the streams would rise, the winds would beat against the house, but this house would come tumbling down. This house would fall apart because its foundation was built on shifting sand. What's interesting about this story is that Jesus is not speaking in poetic language, and Jesus isn't using an example that would be far off to his audience. What he was actually doing was speaking directly into their culture to help them understand a spiritual truth with a physical example. Went to Israel a few years ago, and when I was there, I had a tour guide uh, who actually explained this teaching from Jesus to us. He explained to us that in first century Israel, there were really only two ways to build a house. The first way to build the house was kind of the fast and easy and quick way to build a house. You needed shelter really quickly, and so you would build your house on top of the soil. The soil in Israel is like a sandy-like material, and so when Jesus talked about the builder who would build on the sand, everyone would go, oh yeah, we've seen that. We've seen that guy, Bob, who built his house in a rush on the soil, and everything was good until the rainy season in Israel came, and the rains came down, and the streams rose up, and the winds beat against his house, and, and Bob's house isn't there anymore. Yeah, we, we know exactly what you're talking about, Jesus. And then he would say, no, but there's another way to build a house. Our tour guide would, would explain that the correct way to build a house in Israel is that you would dig down beyond the soil until you got to the bedrock. And when you got to the bedrock, you would take a chisel and you would etch into the bedrock and then you would place the cornerstone of the house against the bedrock so that every stone that was laid down would push against the cornerstone that was pushing on solid rock so that when the winds and the rains and the storm came in the rainy season in Israel, the house wouldn't move the house would remain secure. So there was the quick, easy way where you build on the surface, but eventually the house comes tumbling down. And then there's the more difficult way where you do the hard work of digging and the house remains secure. It's interesting because a segmented Jesus says, oh, he's, he's full of grace and he died for my sin. That's all I need. It's shallow. It's on the surface. But a deep faith says, salvation is by grace alone. So thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. And in response to what you've done, I'm gonna trust you with my life. And I'm gonna live the way you've called me to live. That's why Jesus said, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the builder who built on the rock. The winds come, the rains come, the stream rises, and the house remains secure. Church, hear me this morning. The winds and the rains come for everyone. Adversity is coming one way or another. Lemons are guaranteed, but there is a way to stand secure. There is a way for our life 
to last. There is a way to make it through. There is a way to stand even stronger on the other side. And Jesus would say, the way to stand secure is to build your life on me, to trust me, to live the way that I've called you to live, to trust my words and put them into practice. And if you will do this, your life will remain secure at the end of the storm. But if you don't, be subtle for the surface, it's not going to last. See, Jesus wasn't trying to restrict us. Jesus was trying to lead us. He's trying to lead us to a life that will last. And oftentimes we believe that God's trying to keep us from something, when in reality, he's trying to lead us to something. And he's trying to lead you to a life that will stand the test of time. Y'all, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching you how to build your life to navigate the adversity that is destined to come your way. I want to take you back to the story with Mary. Walked out of the room pretty defeated and got on my phone to figure out which group I would go to next when I heard the door open behind me and then slam really quickly. So I turn around and I see Mary standing outside and says to me, hey, Gerald, can we just talk for a minute? I said, sure. It's 14th floor of the balcony, overlooking the ocean. We sat down and we began to have this conversation together. Mary looks at me and she says, hey, um, I know I told you I like drinking and smoking. I'm hooking up with my boyfriend, but can I just be honest for a minute? Like, the reason that I like those things so much is because those are the only places that I feel like I find joy. And it's the only time that, like, I don't pay attention to everything else that's happening in my world. I said, well, Mary, what's happening in your world? She says, well, my dad's an alcoholic, and he's literally drinking himself to death. And his drinking caused my parents to get a divorce. And so my mom hates my dad, and I'm living with my mom. But the irony is that my mom hates the fact that my dad won't stop drinking, but the only way that she knows to cope with his drinking is to drink herself. And so, Gerald, I have one dad who knows he's an alcoholic, and then I have a mom who doesn't think she's an alcoholic, but she is. And I don't know how to deal with any of it. And so I drink, I smoke. I hook up with my boyfriend, and it's in those moments where, where it feels like for a moment I have peace. But the problem is, as soon as that's done, everything goes back to being chaotic again. And then I come here, and it feels like everyone else is, like, having this connection with God, and everyone else is, like, finding peace in him. But it feels like I'm missing something. It feels like I'm missing out. I remember looking at Mary and saying, hey, um... I think maybe the reason you haven't experienced what everyone else is experiencing is because of the hole that Jesus is meant to fill, you're using other substances to fill it. I said, Mary, who do you drink with? She gave me a list of, of girls. A bunch of them were in her small group. I said, hey, will you go get me the three girls that you trust the most? She said, yeah. She goes back into the condo. She comes back out with these three girls. I look at them and I said this. I said, hey, Mary doesn't even realize this is what she's saying, but here's what she just said to me. She wants to change. And she really wants to experience Jesus. But she can't do that on her own. And I believe you're her friends and you really do love her. And if you really love her, I need you to do a favor for me. 
for the next 30 days, I'm going to ask Mary to go without drinking, without smoking, without hooking up with her boyfriend. But what I need her to do over those next 30 days is to read the gospel for herself, to read through the gospel of John and to experience who Jesus is. But she can't do that alone. So I'm just asking you, as her friends, would you for the next 30 days, no drinking, no smoking, no boys, would you all commit together to reading the scriptures every day? You may have heard of the whole 30. Uh, We called this the Holy 30. And all four of these junior girls committed to daily reading God's word and to abstaining from drinking, from smoking, and from sex. Joined a group text together, and every day they'd text me verses that were standing out to them. And one of the days came, and and Mary hadn't texted in yet, and so I kind of wondered what was going on. She ended up calling me that afternoon, and she said, hey, I'm so sorry I haven't sent my text yet, but... I just wanted to call you really quick and tell you what happened. I said, okay, well, what's going on? She goes, hey, um, I know you didn't ask me to do this, but when I got back from camp, I actually went home and I told my mom about the Holy 30 that we were doing. And I told her that we were going to read the Bible for 30 days and I wasn't going to drink anymore and I wasn't going to have sex anymore and I wasn't going to smoke anymore. Like I I was just going to actually like read my Bible for 30 days. And my mom looked at me and said, I'll do it with you. And so I know you like get texts from us every day, but I just wanted you to know that my mom is doing it too. And this is the first time I've ever seen her sober. Y'all. Can you believe that? That Mary would take seriously the words of Jesus. That whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice their life will stand secure. It's funny, that was Mary's junior year of high school. Mary's a sophomore in college now. We run into each other every now and then, but it's funny, I I follow her on social media and I often see pictures of her at a church. I'll see pictures of her with that group that she went through the Bible study with. I'll see pictures of her on mission trips or her and her mom laughing together in a photo. And and I don't believe that Mary has it all figured out. I don't believe that her life is perfect now, but here's what I know is true just from watching from a distance is Mary's life is stronger and more secure than it's ever been because she took Jesus up on his words. God is not trying to restrict you from something. He's trying to lead you to the thing that you've been looking for this whole time to a strong, safe, and secure life in him. Adversity is a part of the story, but we can stand secure. So the question then becomes, how do we build a house? How do we build our house? Well, Jesus breaks it up into two really simple steps. He says, first, whoever hears these words of mine, The reality for you and me is the pace of our life and the connections that we have cause us us to not be able to fully connect with God. People can get to you on your cell phone, your email, over text message. You have Netflix and TV series and Instagram and social media, and there's all of these different things that are pulling for your attention, and we're all moving at such a rapid rate that we can't hear the words of God for us. And so the first way we build our life on the rock, 
The first way we build our house in a way that our life will be secure as we navigate the adversity of this year, it's really simple. It's we disconnect so we can connect with God. We disconnect from the busyness of our world, from the busyness of our jobs, from the busyness of our family, so that we can get some time one-on-one with our Heavenly Father. Because here's the deal. You can't do what God says if you don't know what he said. And so you've got to find some time to disconnect so you can connect with God. I'd suggest three ways you should write this down. One is daily. That you should find 10 to 15 minutes every single day to disconnect so that you can connect with God. Whether it's in your closet, you go and pray and read the scriptures. Whether it's in your car and you just go to the Bible app and, and listen to a chapter of the Bible and pray on your way to work. Whether it's a bathroom break at work where you sit in the bathroom and dig into the scriptures for 15 minutes. I don't care how or where you do it, but you got to find 10 to 15 minutes to disconnect every single day. The second is monthly. To create a, a rhythm where every month you get away for an hour. Whether it's sitting in your car by the river or driving and sitting by the beach or, or just going and hiding out at a park, but getting an hour to ask God, what do you want to say to me? Reading through the scriptures and going, hey, God, what, what does your word say? What do I need to be challenged in? How can I grow? How can I be better? How can I be more like you? Daily, 10 to 15 minutes. Monthly, an hour a month. And then lastly, annually. And every year, I try to find a different city. And I go away for a couple of days um, to a cabin or an Airbnb. And I put my phone on Do Not Disturb so that my wife is the only person who can get to me. And for two days, I do intensive counseling, find a counselor in the area. I sit down and I go, hey, God, like, what's the one word that you want me to focus on next year? I evaluate, like, how I've felt like my walk with the Lord had been in the previous year. And I take an annual trip to get away and connect with God two to three days. And so I'd suggest those rhythms to you daily, 10 to 15 minutes. Monthly, find one, one hour a month to get away and spend time with God. And then annually, find a couple hours. And if you can't get to an Airbnb or a cabin, go to a friend's house and stay in their basement for a couple of days if you need to. But find some time to disconnect, to connect with God. Because Jesus says, whoever hears these words of mine, we have to know what God says in order to do what Jesus suggests we should do next. Whoever hears these words of mine, what does he say next? And puts them into practice. That's the second way we build our house. We put into practice the teachings of Jesus. Now, I know saying that can be overwhelming. Some of you think like, well, I can't do everything Jesus said. I mean, one, I don't even know everything that he said, but even if I did, I can't do all of it at once. Like, uh, that, that seems really overwhelming. Well, there's a saying that says, you know, how do you eat an elephant? It's one bite at a time. Well, how do you build a house? One brick at a time. See, spiritual maturity is not about knowledge. Spiritual maturity is about application. And it's cool if you know a bunch of verses, But if you don't apply them to your life, then that's not mature. That's just knowledge. It's book smart. I'd rather you know a few verses and actually do them than know every verse and not apply it to your life. You know, there was a word for that in Jesus' time. It was called a Pharisee. And Jesus would constantly criticize them. But the ones who could take one thing that he said and put it into practice... Well, those are the people that Jesus loved to be around. One brick at a time. 
So you don't have to know everything in the Bible, but maybe you'll read it and find that the scripture says that we should flee from sexual immorality. That's what the half-brother of Jesus, James, says. That when, when there's a moment that we're tempted to, to lean into a place that's not best for us sexually, that we should actually run in the opposite direction. And many of us live our lives asking the question, how close can the, to the line can I get? And James would go, no, 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 the question should actually be how far away from the line can I get? And so maybe for some of us, the brick that we need to lay down is there's a secretary that we've gotten too close to, or there's somebody that we follow on Facebook, an old high school person that every time we see get to their page, we linger just a little bit too long. Maybe it's some accounts that you follow or some websites that you go to often that you're good at hiding from your wife. I don't know what it is for you, but maybe your brick today is just to say, I'm going to start fleeing. One brick at a time. Maybe your brick is confession. It's a tough one. But maybe it's time for you to stop carrying the secret that you've been carrying on your own and get honest with someone. Because James would also write that when we confess to each other, we actually find healing. And what you're most afraid of is that if you'll confess to someone, you'll be ridiculed, you'll be hated, they'll make fun of you, they'll judge you. But in actuality, what will likely happen is you'll be met with a me too, or you'll be met with, hey, that's not who you are. It's just something you did. So let's move forward and let's keep running after Jesus together. Maybe confession is your brick. Maybe for you, the brick is prayer. And if you're honest in this season, you haven't prayed as much as you used to, or maybe you've really never developed a pattern, pattern of prayer in your life. And, and maybe for you, it's like, hey, we pray at meals just so our kids know that we're supposed to pray. But you can't remember the last time that you had an honest conversation with God. And maybe your brick today is for you to go home and get in your closet or get on your face and go, Jesus, I need you. I can't do this without you. I'm desperate for you right now. Because the scripture says, if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. So you don't have to know everything to pray. It's one brick at a time. Maybe for you, your brick is humility. And maybe you find yourself becoming prideful because you actually do know a lot of verses. And you've been a Christian for a really long time. In fact, you probably knew what scripture I was going to preach before I even preached it. But here's the thing. You got to remember this. Jesus says, or the scripture says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And so maybe the step for you is to take your eyes off of judging others and to humble yourself before God. You wanna know how you become more humble? It's not just trying, it's not just like, oh, come on! No. You know the path to humility? It's not compare yourself to others, but rather compare yourself to God. You get humble real quick. Or maybe, your brick, it's the most significant brick you could ever lay down in your life. And it's the invitation from Jesus all throughout the scriptures. Follow me. And maybe you've been running from God because you believe that Jesus was trying to restrict you from something, that God was trying to keep you from something, that he was angry or upset with you, and that he could never want you. But just hear me this morning. 
you're exactly who God wants and you're exactly who Jesus died for. And so maybe today is the day that you stop running from him and you start following him and you allow him to lead you to a safe, strong, and secure life. Because y'all, come on. The adversity is coming one way or another. But we can stand secure. Whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a builder who builds on the rock. The rains will come. The streams will rise. The winds will beat against it. But the house will not fall. Father, thank you that those words are true and that many of us in the room and who are watching online have experienced the truth in those words. That while we have faced adversity and while life has been difficult, that we're able to navigate it with a strength and confidence knowing that the end of the story is that we win because you've won. And so for those of us who haven't experienced that, Father, I pray that you would give us the courage, the confidence, and the wisdom to start taking you on your word and to put it into practice. For those of us who have settled for a, a Savior Jesus but who have left out the Lord Jesus, who's leading us to life and life to the full, would you help us reconcile that today? For all of us as we navigate adversity, would you lead us to the life that you've promised us, a safe, strong, and secure life in you? We love you and we thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for being with us uh, again as we wrapped up the series When Life Gives You Lemons. We love you so much. We will see you back here next week. Peace.